It's days like today, um, it's gospels like today's gospel, where I'm very, very grateful that we have a deacon. Because I don't have to read all these rough names and words, right? Tetrarch, I don't know when's the last time you dropped that one at a party. Um, Iturea, Trachonitis, Lysania, I got to tell you, Deacon Tim, you did a fantastic job because I'm terrible at this. And typically, what actually happens, um, I've, I've had a couple of people come to me whenever it's there, like when they're going to read for Mass, um, and they'll run across a word like this, and usually my advice is very simple. Say it like you know what you're saying, and no one's going to know the difference, right? Because the reality is, there's probably two people in the church that might know how to actually say these words, and if you do, please let me know after Mass. But the reality is, you, you sound like you know what you're doing, and you're good to go, right? Um, especially when we get the names, the genealogy, come Christmas, good luck, we're going to prepare for that one. Um, but... You just say it the same way twice and just say it like you know it and you're good. The reality is, though, I know whenever, uh, and, and still to this day, I fight the temptation that when we start getting to names and places and this kind of language, a lot of times, now I'm, I'm sure I'm the only one and no one else does this, but a lot of times when we start getting this kind of language that I don't really know and it's confusing names, I usually, I usually tune out. That's usually when I kind of go into autopilot and I'm like, let me just sit back and wait till there's a name that I recognize. John the Baptist, oh yeah, I know about him. That sounds good. And I'm locking back in. So I'll just ignore the first half of the gospel today. I, I'm, I'm not confessing anything, I promise. Um, but can, can just kind of ignore the names and the people and, and let's, let's just get to a point that actually might apply. But I think it's very interesting because what St. Luke is doing in the gospel when he's breaking this down is kind of twofold. The first thing that he's doing in using all these names and places and kind of contextualizing this, the first thing he's doing, he's fulfilling the promise that he made at the very beginning of the gospel of Luke. And he's saying, I'm going to talk about a real person that lived at a particular time in a particular place. His name is Jesus Christ, and I want to make sure that you know who I'm talking about, that he existed, and I'm going to give you the setting in which he existed. In the first chapter of Luke, which we did not read today, but in the very first chapter, the opening verses of Luke, Luke basically says very, very plainly, I've talked to eyewitnesses, I have looked into it myself, I have done the research, I have come, I've collected, and I'm going to give you a biography of the actions of Jesus of Nazareth. And as we get to the third chapter of Luke today, we start to get to Jesus' public ministry. You see, Luke did the research. He talked to the eyewitnesses. It's actually in tradition, there's a tradition that says that Luke was very, very close to the Blessed Mother. So there's no, there's no wonder why the stories of Jesus as a young child growing up with the Holy Family, where do we find those, where do we find those stories? The beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Because he actually talked to the eyewitnesses. Jesus getting lost in the temple, that's in Luke's Gospel. Jesus growing, and, and we hear the, young, the stories of young Jesus, of the young man growing up with the Holy Family. 
We hear the story of the presentation in the temple. That's all in the Gospel of Luke because Luke is doing what he told us he was going to do. He's going to give us a full picture of who Jesus is and that he's a real person. You see, there's a, there, there's a movement, there's a secularizing, there, there's a way in which a lot of times we almost mythologize Jesus as he's just kind of this figurehead that may or may not have existed. No, no, no. We're talking about a real person in a real time. It's very important for us to begin there, that we're talking about a real person that existed in a real time and in a real place. The second thing I think is important about all of these names and all these people is that we actually have some, some kind of a litany of, of rough people that don't have a good reputation. For example, Tiberius Caesar. Um, Tiberius Caesar is widely known as one of the most evil and the most immoral and the most corrupt Caesars that ever existed in the Roman Empire. Tiberius Caesar was one that was seen as brutal when it came to punishing, was explicitly sexual in, in, in public and massive ways, and he was seen as just an immoral leader. He's notoriously known as an immoral, like not respected Caesar. Pontius Pilate. We know about Pontius Pilate. We, hear, we know the name Pontius Pilate. First station of the cross, right? Pontius Pilate condemns Jesus to death. If we read the gospel, you can almost hear the tension in which Pontius Pilate finds himself, where there's a political kind of influence of putting Jesus to death because you don't want an uprising. And, and there's kind of this tension that Pontius Pilate sits in. But his reputation in history is very, very plain. He was brutal. He was, he was not merciful at all. Pontius Pilate was known as a, a governor in the Roman Empire that was going to come and clean house. And he didn't feel bad about it. He was going to spill blood of people that crossed the Romans. And he did not feel bad about it whatsoever. He was not known as a merciful leader. Keep going a little bit further. We have Herod. Herod is supposed to be the advocate on the behalf of the Jews. He's supposed to be a, 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 a political figure, but that had the Jews back. But instead, Herod was known as lazy, as fat, as not one who was concerned about his people, but was more concerned about, about filling himself. He just kicks back. Let's the Jews deal with their own stuff and kind of rest on his laurels. The figure who was supposed to have the backs of the people, but instead just wants to, wants to take the glory for himself. And let's not forget Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. Again, two names that might be familiar from Passion Narratives. 
These were supposed to be the leaders of the Jewish people. These were supposed to be their religious leaders, the, the high priests in the temple, the ones who offered sacrifice, the ones who were the figurehead and the spiritual leaders of the people, of the chosen people of God. And instead, they were corrupt and they were finding ways to manipulate the people for their own gain. Needless to say, Jesus is starting his ministry in a time where political leaders were ruthless and driven by self-interest, and religious leaders did not care about their flock, was more concerned about some kind of selfish self-interest, and were abandoning their post. Now, I'm happy that this is 2,000 years ago, and this would never happen today. I'm so grateful that we wouldn't have a Supreme Court case that got heard this week that has to figure out if life in the womb is actually life. Or if people that proclaim that they are Catholic and run the Pope's picture in campaign ads actually stand up for life from conception until natural death. I'm very, very grateful that we wouldn't have shepherds in the church, um, and I will, be, I will throw myself on top of this fire with it, that fall short in way after way after way, some more public than others, Namely, looking out for self-interest more than on behalf of the flock. I'm very grateful that that would be 2,000 years ago and not today. I hope you can pick up on the sarcasm in my voice. (laughs) The reason why I bring that up is because today when we look at our gospel... What we are seeing is that the situation that Jesus enters into is just as bleak and just as deserted as we might feel it is today in our world. When, when we hear in the gospel that Luke quotes the, God, the, the prophet Isaiah and he says a voice crying out in the desert and he's referencing to John the Baptist and that John the Baptist is this fulfillment of a voice crying out the desert, prepare the way of the Lord and all these beautiful things afterwards. The desert was real for the people in Jesus' time in the first century. They felt the pressure of the Roman Empire and the self-interest and the possibility, possibility of a brutal death. They felt the, they felt the abandonment of the, peop- of, of the religious leaders abandoning their posts and being more concerned about themselves and less concerned about their flock. Dare I say, the people of the first century felt a lot more like we do today than we might recognize. And yet, God entered in to that mess entered in to that broken time and place and began to to bring about 
his will, and his grace. Who's to say he can't do it again? Who's to say that wherever you find yourself, whether you are fed up with the things of the world and the stuff being yelled about on Facebook, (laughs) whether you find yourself tired of waiting for your adjuster to come figure out what's going to happen to the hole in your roof, that you find yourself struggling with issues in your family, or a broken heart because of loss? Who's to say that the same God who entered in to a mess and a desert 2,000 years ago can't do the same thing for you today, starting today, this Advent season? This is the purpose of Advent for us. This is the time, Advent is a time for us, very, very simple, where we open ourselves, mess and all, brokenness and all, hurt and all, where we open ourselves to receive God at Christmas. That God can enter into the desert, even of my life, and bring about good. That he can enter into the deserts and the broken corners and the dark areas, even of my life, and allow his grace to flow. It requires us to have hope in a God who we believe is real who wants to step down into our mess. So often, a, a, a very popular book for a lot of high school students um, in the past has been The Diary of Anne Frank. Um, if you don't remember who Anne Frank is, Anne Frank was a young woman, uh, a young girl, who from 1942 to 1944 uh, was in hiding. Uh, she was a young Jewish girl. They were in hiding. Um, in, from, the, from the Nazi officials um, because their Jews were being rounded up and, and sent to concentration camps. Um, when they were in hiding in this little annex closet of a sort in, uh, in, in this, because of this one person that was, that was helping them out, um, she would write regularly about what was going on while they were, they were basically stuck in silence, her entire family, hiding from the Gestapo so that they wouldn't be arrested. And even in hearing all of the rumors that was going on, and seeing all the evil out of a window, and knowing of all the tortures and all the, and all the ways in which the world around her was messed up and broken, there's one line that, that continues to stick out from her diary. She wrote, In spite of everything, I still believe people are really good at heart. That's the kind of the line that has stuck out in history, but but just listen to the hope of this young woman. I simply can't build up my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, 
misery, and death. I see the world gradually being turned into a wilderness. I hear the ever-approaching thunder, which will destroy us too. I can feel the sufferings. And yet, if I look into the heavens, I think that it will all come right. That cruelty too will end. And peace and tranquility will return again. Do we believe in our life today that God can do something with our mess? Do we believe, do we have faith enough to invite the Lord in and allow him into our mess? That may require just a, just a discipline of prayer for the rest of Advent. That may require for the first time in a long time coming to confession and opening up your life to the mercy and grace of God in that profound sacramental moment. That's what God wants to do today. That's what God wants to do during this season, and I'm convinced that's what God wants to do for us and renew for us each day of our life, is that God wants to very simply enter into the mess of the world and the mess that I have here in my heart. And wants to start to let his grace flow. The final thing I'll leave you with. Um, I, I was visiting with Father PJ this week. Um, I had to go brag to him about LSU getting Notre Dame's coach. But um, while, while we were visiting, one of the things I mentioned to him, I said, we were talking about funerals, and I said, uh, it's interesting because in talking with a family, in about five minutes, I, can, I recognize how strong their faith is. And he kind of, he, he perked up because he said, yeah, I, I see it too. And I said, I said, people that have faith, you can see that when they're faced with death, that absolutely there's a loss, but they know where to go with it. it, it it's, it's never too heavy for them. That they are sad for having lost whoever the person is. But they know where to run with it. And they're willing to invite God into the mess. I said in people that struggle with their faith, they might not have been practicing their faith. So often, they try and hold on to something that is just kind of empty. It doesn't seem to do enough. But they, they want to grasp and hold on tight. Because their faith, they, they, they don't know that Jesus is willing to come into and meet them in their hurt. Advent is a time for us of allowing the Lord in, of practicing that virtue, of letting God into our mess, into our hurt, into our weakness, our darkness, into the places that we struggle the most. And he's used to it. 
He's used to entering in to a bleak, deserted situation. From the moment that he stepped into this world. Today, as we come to communion, as God steps down again to meet us, may we allow God into the deepest, darkest recesses of our heart. May we open ourselves up, expose, and let him see the mess that is there so that he can strengthen and fulfill our hope.